Uh, today's scripture is Matthew 3, 16 through 4, 11. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. Have you ever been in a conversation where you really thought you knew what you were talking about, but then completely missed it? You know, I mean, you blew it when you really thought you knew it. Have you ever felt like this guy? Universe 2015 is Columbia! Uh, th there's... I have to apologize. <laughs> Can you imagine announcing the wrong Miss Universe on national television? That has to be the biggest miss in TV in 2015. <laughs> but honestly, as I was reading through Matthew 4, I think we're in danger of an even bigger miss. Just like Steve Harvey, we can have the text right in front of us. And we can be duped into thinking that the runner-up is the champion of this story. I'm like most people, okay, I want to learn resilience as a person. I want to be able to come out the side of life's tests victorious. I want to learn how to fight temptation. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from Jesus in doing just that here in this passage. And yet, even though that is beautiful and that is good, it is only the runner-up to the beauty of the true champion in this story. As Jacob read for us this morning, we see at the tail end of Matthew chapter 3, first God the Father proclaim over his son that he is well pleased, and the spirit descends as if a dove is coming to land on a perch. And where does the spirit lead Jesus? Out of the Jordan Valley does he lead him to a throne to exercise justice and bring peace? Does he bring him to go do good social work? Does he bring him to a palace? No, instantly he brings him to a desolate wilderness, alone, vulnerable to be tempted by Satan. 
And then he comes out. Worn out to be sure, but not worn down. You see, our text this morning is primarily not a how-to guide as much as it is a who-did story. Because God knows we need more than just good advice. We need a perfect Savior. But that begs the question, doesn't it? I mean, why, do we, why does Jesus need to be tempted? It seems like such a strange narrative in the midst of the Gospels. Why does Matthew, one of Jesus' contemporaries, one of his closest followers, insist that I need a Savior who's been tempted in every way as I have and yet not failed? I mean, how does that change our lives? Well, because in one sense, it's the only thing that ever will. But before we dive into that any deeper, um, we first need to look at another runner-up, someone who's never liked to play second fiddle to anyone, let alone God. And whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you've probably had a moment, we've all had that moment where it's just difficult to believe in anything like a devil, let alone the devil, right? This is why Fox has a show coming out this month called Lucifer. And if you've seen the preview, it's, it, it captures the way most of us view Satan, as something to laugh at, not someone to take seriously. But Matthew chapter 4 provides a more robust understanding of our world than our shallow cultural perspective can provide. Matthew pulls back the veil on an aspect of our experience we rarely notice. And that's how evil is both supernatural as well as personal. Okay, just to be clear, because there are a lot of narratives on how to understand the world out there, we need to understand that nowhere in Scripture does it say that Satan is equal to God in any fashion. In other words, there is not an eternal war of good and evil with two equal forces being portrayed. Instead, this is what we see across the pages of Scripture. Satan is a supernatural being that was created. An angel that rebelled against God around the dawn of creation because he longed to be greater than God. He saw in his pride that he deserved to be above his creator. And so in that, he became the adversary, which is what the name Satan means, adversary, to God's good purposes in the world. In other words, to sum it up, Satan is seeking to destroy out of anger, out of vengeance, where God is seeking to redeem. Why does all of this matter? Why does it matter that we need to understand evil as supernatural? Well, first, and this is a precursor before we dive into the text, first we need to understand that Satan is brilliant, okay? Satan is brilliant. There's a painting that's on display in the Nelson Atkins Museum currently that captures this brilliantly. And in this painting, the devil is portrayed as a beautiful young woman carrying gold. And right at the very bottom, you can almost barely see it, Right at the very end of her skirt, where you would expect a genteel foot to be that matches the rest of her composure, is a claw. Now, okay, we could get carried away with the sexist ideals of this artist in a bygone age. It could have been a strapping young man carrying diamonds. Let's get past that. Let's not miss the point, okay? The point is, is that Satan knows our lusts, our longings, our dreams, our hopes, and he won't shout when a whisper will do. He will assess until he finds the chink in the armor and he will strike. He will strategize. He will scheme and then camouflage that which is destructive to make it look like paradise. And then he'll wait. Because Satan isn't just brilliant. He's patient. But it's not the kind of patience we 
are excited about. You see, if he's been around since around the dawn of creation, what's a few more years? If he can get you to move just an inch in the trajectory of your life over 20, 30, 50 years, you finally look up and realize you're far from course, stranded and alone. You see, Satan can wait a couple years as long as he gets you in the end. And none of this makes sense unless we also understand that evil is personal, which means life or a Star Wars isn't true to life. No matter how many times I try Jedi mind tricks on my dog, those socks are not the two toys you're looking for, right? It just doesn't speak to life. And yet, that means evil isn't an impersonal force. Evil is complicated to be sure. It engages systems, a lack of education, a lack of economic opportunity, family dynamics to be sure. But we can't miss that evil is also personal. Because if we miss this, we're going to have a myopic view of evil that will leave us both frustrated and defeated. But not only will we have a myopic understanding of evil, we'll also have an anemic vision of who Christ is which is even more important. Because when Jesus goes into this wilderness, he's not just fighting environmental circumstances and existential questions which literarily have been now typified by this personified evil of Satan. No, Jesus goes into the wilderness and wrestles through the precise attacks of the foe of God's purposes, the one who's seeking to obliterate God's redemptive plan. We need to see that Jesus is resilient. We need to see that Jesus perseveres for the salvation of the world. We need to see someone who is tempted as we have been, who has tread where we have walked and yet gone further still into the battle, a place that we can't go, and that no one nor nothing will be able to stop him from saving us. We need a champion. But the way he goes about doing it is kind of upside down, (laughs) which we come to find out as we're walking through Matthew this year, kind of typifies the rest of his life. And as we walk through these three temptations, we're going to see Jesus flip us on our head and how we see power, how we see trust, how we see love. And then in the end, when we come to understand all of those, how we actually see him. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And it all starts with this upside-down way in which Jesus embodies power. The very first temptation we read comes on the tail end of 40 days of fasting. Now, fasting can be a spiritually enriching discipline when done appropriately. But to say that Jesus is hungry after 40 days of fasting is maybe the biggest understatement of the year. Right, exactly. And so when we come to Jesus, I want you to imagine every fiber of your being is starving for nutrition. And right there, Satan with his brilliance and his patience strikes. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Which at first blush, why on earth is this a temptation? I mean, if Jesus is hungry and he's got the power to turn stones into bread... I mean, aren't we talking about the same guy who feeds some 4,000 folks later out of a few loaves? Why is this a temptation? It all hangs on the very phrase that Satan utters first in verse 3. If you are the son of God. 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, look, Satan and Jesus both know who Jesus is. Like we said at the tail end of chapter 3, verse 17, God the Father proclaims over Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And when God is making, God the Father is making this proclamation, he's not just affirming the identity of Jesus, but he's clarifying the calling of Christ. You see, God is intentionally, as we saw last week, quoting what he had already told the prophet Isaiah centuries earlier in Isaiah 42, describing not only that Jesus is this chosen one, the Son, but what this chosen one, this son, is to be like. And there are two primary roles as a way of review. First, we understand that the true son, the chosen one, is the promised forever king in the lineage of King David of Israel. And he's to bring order to a disordered world. But this king and his reign is not any old reign. When you get the full and the robust picture that Isaiah presents time and again of this chosen one, he describes a king, the son, who's also a suffering servant. He's not someone who abuses his power and so abuses his people to gain his own comfort. But instead, listen to how Isaiah describes this chosen one as one who is pierced for our transgressions. In another place, he describes him as one who is crushed for our iniquities. And then he even goes so far to say as, by his wounds, we are healed. You see, this ultimately isn't a temptation about bread, okay? Satan is seeking to thwart the very redemptive plan of God. Satan is seeking and calling Jesus to abandon the king he was sent to be. A king who would forego his rights, forego his power, forego his privilege and embrace suffering as the crucial component of his calling that he might save his people from their sins. But in a small, out-of-the-sight way, seemingly insignificant, Satan calls Jesus to be a different king, even if it's just the movement of an inch. Why don't you use your power for your own comfort, for your own gain, Jesus? Why don't you avoid this suffering altogether? I mean, if just for a little bread, don't you deserve bread? And if you can imagine being on the brink of starvation and Jesus uttering these words in verse 4 in response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what is the word that has been proclaimed over Jesus? He will be the king who suffers for his people. And his sufficiency, his sustenance, his joy comes in being who God has called him to be. God the Father has called his son and sent his son to be. And with you and I in mind, if this is the only true path to redemption, with you and I in mind, with the pleasure of the Father in mind, Jesus walks through this first temptation unwavering and unwilling to abuse his power which in one sense is all the more powerful. It's an upside-down power. But you and I haven't been so resilient, have we? I mean, we've all abused our power for the sake of our own comfort, our own gain at the expense of others. And maybe you're sitting here, and 
I know I was wrestling through this and you're thinking, I don't have power. I'm not the boss over anyone. Have you been to my house? <clears throat> Here's the deal. We all have power. We may not all have control, but we all have power. You have people who trust you. You have people who rely upon you, who listen to you, all power. And the locus of that power may be at work. It may be in home. It may be at school. But regardless, we all have power. And the question remains, how often have we used our power at the expense of others to place ourselves in greater comfort? If I look at my own heart, I know that's more often than I would care to admit. And that's why we need more than just a model who shows us how to use power appropriately. We need someone who has done it perfectly already for us. Okay, one temptation down, two to go, two to go. And the second tactic that uh, Satan tries to use here is he brings Jesus atop the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, if you are the son of God, there he goes again, right? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's going on here? Well, the devil's in the details, literally. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in each of these three quotations, each of these three quotations, Jesus responds with quotations from Scripture, okay? And we'll get to the significance of what those are here in a minute. Maybe you've read through this passage before and you haven't noticed it, but the more you read your Bibles, it jumps off the page. But right here, Satan now responds by quoting Scripture himself. You see, Jesus, uh, Satan knows the Bible. And he quotes Psalm 91. The theme of Psalm 91 is that those who trust in God will be protected by God. And the imagery is beautiful. As angels come to hold those who trust in God as if a mother is holding her newborn infant. It's beautiful. So what on earth is Satan doing quoting scripture to Jesus here? Just as we saw in the first temptation that it had little to do with bread. This has little to do with actually jumping off the temple. It has everything to do with what kind of son Jesus will be. And he shows us right here that the true son of God has an upside-down trust. You see, so often, how do we gauge trust in our relationships? We look for two core things, don't we? Character and competency. In other words, are they the kind of person who will do what they said they are going to do? Character. And are they the kind of person who has the ability to carry out what they said they were going to do? Ability, you know, this is the, the competency. We call those kinds of folks trustworthy. And God the Son, Jesus, trusts God the Father to the utmost. That he knows that if he were to jump off the temple, that God has both the character and the competency to deliver and to protect. And this would prove to the world that Jesus is the true Son. It would prove to Satan. It would prove to Jesus. But the son has not come into the world to test God, but to trust and submit. The son hasn't come in to manipulate God the Father, but to trust in the plan of redemption. You see, for Jesus, when he came into the world, he knew that trusting God meant that deliverance was on the far side, not the near side. It meant first that it was going to lead to his ruin, to absolute humiliation and destruction on the cross first. 
But this is the only way to save his people from their sins. You see, the temptation for Jesus was to test God, the Father, rather than trust him. To seek to manipulate God, the Father, to bring comfort rather than even follow him through the suffering. You see, there was an earlier son that's talked about in Scripture, an earlier son of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we read that the Son of God constantly points to the nation of Israel. And they too were drawn into the wilderness for 40 years. This is not a purposeless symmetry of 40 days, 40 years. But time and again, when they said, we will do all that you've commanded us to do, they didn't follow through. Time and again, they were unable to meet God's perfect standard. And Moses, at the end of his life, he recounts all of this in the book of Deuteronomy. And interestingly enough, it is out of the book of Deuteronomy that all three of these quotations that flow from the mouth of Jesus are found. In Deuteronomy chapter, six, Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, we find the quotations that Jesus pronounces back at Satan. Jesus is explicitly saying that which Israel failed to do as that son, as the true son, the fulfillment of Israel, I will complete. And he does so without shaking. When he says, it is written, you shall not test the Lord or put the Lord, your God, to the test. But we've all been shaken, haven't we? Our trust is much more like the first son than it ever is like the second. We come to God with conditions that he needs to meet to prove himself before we'll say, okay, I'll trust you. We come expecting God to give us comfort and are confused when suffering enters. Christian Smith, he's a sociologist who did a considerable study on how Americans view religion and specifically God. And I want you to listen to how he summarizes the central defining perspective of Americans when, when we think about God. Here it is. God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. If I live a good life, God should give me comfort and blessing. Let me repeat that. This is the narrative we often buy into. This is the narrative that is the main thread within our culture. God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. If I live a good life, God should give me comfort and blessing. This language, it doesn't sound like dependence. It doesn't sound like trust. It sounds like entitlement and demand. And there could not be anything further from the posture of Christ that we find here in this passage and his overarching life and who he calls us to be as his followers. Even knowing that suffering was destined in his mission, being the perfect son, the ultimate good, Jesus trusts unconditionally. If you know yourself at all, you know you need more than just a model to teach you how to trust with that sort of resilience. You need someone who's gone ahead and done it for you. And in this last temptation, we see how it all comes to a head. You notice actually in the narrative, there's this upward movement. Satan starts with Jesus in the wilderness. Then he moves him to the top of the temple mount. And this last temptation has a greater intensity and it's matched with its altitude. He brings him to the highest mountain now and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And, G and Satan pushes all pretense to the side. He gets vic 
very explicit here and goes for what he's been searching for this whole time. Listen to what he says. All these I will give you if. There's always a cost, isn't there? It seems so simple. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This language of worship. Do you feel the weight of this temptation? Do you understand what Satan is offering Jesus here? That means a kingdom now without the mocking of religious leaders. A kingdom now that would forego the beatings and the suffering. A kingdom now that forgoes the cross. A crown without the cross right there. And all Jesus has to do is let his weak body that barely is standing in and of itself fall to the ground and give his devotion, give his love, give his worship to someone other than the true God. It's so easy, so simple, so appealing. But this time, Jesus' response is curt. With the last bit of energy he can muster, he almost shouts it. In the Greek, it's explicit. Be gone, Satan! You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. No one deserves the love and devotion and worship of the Son outside of God the Father, the one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who sent the Son and so will resurrect the Son, the one who sent his Son into suffering to save his people from their sins. And then we see in verse 11 that Satan obeys Christ rather than Christ ever obeying Satan. Truly greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And ironically enough, catch this, don't miss this, okay? Jesus falls into the arms of angels in accord with Psalm 91 after all. Not in Satan's way, but in unconditional trust. But I, I don't want us to be fooled because this is the battle that Jesus will actually wage the rest of his life. Yeah, he may not be in the wilderness. And, and check this, okay, because he is definitely fully God, but he's fully man. And the weight of this temptation, the instant gratification of kingdom now rather than kingdom through suffering is always upon him. With every self-denial, every victory over sin and temptation, the pressure mounts. The stress grows. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, in those rare moments in our own lives when we've actually overcome temptation, what do you experience? It's not a release. It's not ease. But it's actually a growing hardship. And Jesus goes further into the battle than we can go. And the fight gets only more and more intense as he continues on. This is why I think later in Jesus' ministry, Matthew records a moment keeping our passage in mind when Jesus is telling his closest followers, I have come to suffer and die. It's right on the tail ends when Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says the Christ is to suffer and die for his people. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Listen to this. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus hears the slithering voice of Satan even behind one of his closest apostles. 
and he, and he almost snaps because he says, get behind me, Satan. Wait, 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 wait. This doesn't make any sense unless we understand what's going on in the temptation. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it doesn't even stop there. When we finally get to the blessed garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross, all the suffering that is to come, and Jesus is sweating blood, and he's praying three times over, what's his request? My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Always the temptation of a crown without the cross. Being God's son, following God's plan without suffering. And even knowing the brutality that awaited him, he never gave in. Instead, he embraced his calling to serve the Father. He persevered in the plan of redemption, suffered and died so that there might he might save his people from their sins. And in so doing, he embodies this upside-down love. A different kind of devotion and worship and service that does not sway. And how many of us can say we live with that kind of devotion, that kind of love, that kind of worship? How many times have we been on the cusp of gaining the world at the small price of our soul and we gladly pay? You know, as Rosaria Butterfield writes, Jesus sweated blood. He withstood the test. He ran the whole race. We cannot make such claims. We have not been tested that hard or humiliated that comprehensively. We are in the ABCs of the kindergarten of the school of temptation. By not falling into temptation, Jesus ran the whole race while I collapsed in the first mile. And I know that's true of me. And if that is true of Jesus, what on earth does that mean? Does it mean... As Peter writes in one of his letters, thinking of being rebuked by Jesus, knowing the temptation, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, that's part of it, but it's still the runner-up. Does it mean what the author of Hebrews seeks to comfort us by in chapter 2, verse 18? For because he himself, speaking of Jesus has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Yes, Jesus also longs to guide us in victory over temptation. He's the only source of our strength. But even still, we can't stop there. That's not the primary purpose as to which Matthew is pointing us to. Otherwise, we'll miss the champion of this text. Why, after all, do we need a Savior who's been tempted in every way that we have and yet never failed because we've already abused our power. We've already given our hearts to things that are unworthy. We've already come to God with a trust that is so conditional that it flakes at the smallest sound of suffering. We have failed and often joined either intentionally or unintentionally the ploys of Satan in curtailing God's Good work of redemption. We need someone who hasn't failed who can deal with our already failings first. That's the starting point. 
So the Spirit leads Jesus as soon as the proclamation comes into the wilderness. To be tempted and not fail where everyone else has, where you and I have failed, to defeat what has already defeated us. So that as he continued to fight temptation all of his life and come to the climax of the cross where he finally cries, it is finished. We can rest in that victory as the final word over us rather than our failings. You see, we have to be given victory. We can't earn it. No amount of self-help guides will help us attain it. It has to be given. We can't first change our life. We need to first be given life. This is why we need a Savior who's been tempted in every single way that we have and further still and came out perfect so that he might be our substitute, that he might go to the cross and take the wages of sin upon himself and pay our debt so that we might have the victory instead of what we rightly deserved, that God might be both just and the justifier so that when the temptations come and go, when New Year's resolutions rise and fall, when success or failure hits, whoever embraces Jesus Christ as the perfect son, as the substitute, the one who took our place and paid our penalty as their Savior and Lord, we can now sing resiliently when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. This is why we gather together. This is why we come together, not just to convene, but to commune with Christ and his body. We don't come to be entertained, but to partake in Christ. This is why the Lord's Supper is such a crucial response, even as the people of God. We gather together to remember and celebrate his victory for us. And the irony of a hungry Savior offering us bread. It is through common, broken bread we remember his perfect, broken body for us. And in common juice, we remember his blood shed that he might save his people from their sins. As we come this morning, before we do come, I want us to take a moment of silence. Not to write out a list of goals, not to mark a, a, a list of next steps, but to rest in the victory of Christ that has been accomplished for you. I've gotten emails from some of you of just wrestling through temptation and feeling the failure. Rest in the victory that comes in Christ as we begin this new year. You're not earning your acceptance anymore. Not if you rest in Christ. 